This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Bagley in a beautiful snow-covered Stockholm. Here on the 10th episode of the podcast, we're circling back to Dr. Annika Nielsen, following up on episode 5 for the second part of the interview in which she advances her idea of the Arctic Paradox. The first entails the Arctic Council's contradictory priorities of environmental protection and facilitating natural resource exploitation. The second paradox, discussed in this episode, is how the Arctic is often portrayed as a region of peaceful cooperation, yet the specter of conflict is ever-present in much of the reporting and analysis of Arctic affairs. Annika begins by explaining some of the history and inner workings of the Arctic Council, and its place as the key institution of Arctic governance. Well, the Arctic Council is really an interesting body. Of course, it started with the Arctic Environmental Protection Strategy, and it started at a time when there really was the Cold War tensions, and you had the Arctic had been a military theater, and this effort to actually build a peaceful region. And even if I'm sometimes critical of what the Arctic Council hasn't done when it comes to dealing with the emissions of greenhouse gases, for example, it also has done a lot. And I think it also speaks to... The role of international regimes and international fora where you can continue cooperating even if you really have differences of opinion. We should also remember that most of the work in the Arctic Council is not what happens at ministerial meetings. Most of the work in the Arctic Council happens at the working group level. And you have this enormous wealth of knowledge that the Arctic Council working groups have gathered and assessed over the years. I would say you would not have that knowledge about what's going on in the Arctic now had it not been for the Arctic Council. And especially what you had previously, you might have had knowledge about one lake in Canada and another lake in Sweden. But when you start connecting those dots, you start understanding processes Kind of actually the reason why I did my PhD, why I chose the topic was I looked at the Arctic Climate Impact Assessment, but it was really came from my previous work as a science writer working with some of the pollution assessments. And the dogma at that point was very much that science speaks to policy. And if policy had impacts on science, it was usually seen as something negative. It was politics steering science. But what I saw in those processes was something really interesting, is that the international political context as such, which at that point was the Arctic Environmental Protection Strategy, had created putting scientists from all the Arctic countries in the same room and from various different disciplines in the same room, they started talking to each other in a way that would never have done in an academic setting. And they started actually realizing, for example, a very, very clear one was when the people who looked at uh, contaminants in animals and tried to assess what level of contaminants might actually affect the population, the health of the population. And then the human health people saw that and they realized these levels were seen people. And the human health people had never talked to the people who looked at animal health. So you got these 
cross-cutting things because you had an international collaborative context that had put these people in the same room with the mission to come up with knowledge that would be of societal relevance and in that case also of political relevance in the sense that it, there were political processes that ongoing and negotiations that were going that this could feed into. So I think one has to, in a sense, look at the Arctic Council as much more than the ministers and, as it is now, the ministers of foreign affairs meeting. At that point, it was the ministers of environment except for the United States, which always had State Department presence. So that type of function of an international regime, I think, is critical because you start understanding processes that are transboundary in and of themselves, not just transboundary pollution, but the whole system is, in this case, covering the region, but also with global connection. And you cannot understand that if you're only studying something local. And there, I think, the Arctic Council has been critical in our understanding of the role that the Arctic actually plays in many contexts. What's the understanding that's generated by the work of these working groups, which are mostly consist of scientists? Is it the actual interaction of the scientists themselves? It's the interactions of the scientists, usually with government representatives, but often people who work in agencies. They're experts. So you also have that bridge between science and policy. You have people knowing the political negotiations processes going on so that when scientists try to answer questions, they can try to answer them in such a way that it's relevant to the political process and vice versa, and you get an environment where that discussion actually takes place. And you have had a lot of just the networks that have been created between people, between different countries, but also between different types of expertise. Would you call this science diplomacy, a term that's sometimes used to describe how scientists function uh, on the diplomatic level? It certainly is one aspect of it. Absolutely, it's science diplomacy. And, and if you look at what inspired originally the AAPS, was work that had been going on in Europe trying to bridge the East and West by looking at mapping impacts of emissions. It was also that type of using science diplomacy that was actually quite explicit and using environmental issues as the bridge because that was considered low politics. It wasn't contentious in itself. You could easily see a shared interest. That, of course, is not necessarily the case of all environmental problems today. I would say climate change is very much high politics. So you had this shift of moving into areas of high politics, and that's also when tensions in the Arctic Council have really come out, where it's difficult for something like the Arctic Council to function because it is a consensus body. So there, kind of, there is a limit to what a body like this can do. And, and one of the things I'm doing in one project, research project, is in a sense, what role can regional international governance play? And when does it actually run into something where it can't play that role as efficiently as you've seen the Arctic Council and its predecessor APS do previously? And, and unfortunately, it seems like dealing with the fossil fuels is one of those areas where it is running into too strong national interests and geopolitical interests that it's difficult. And what happens then in the Arctic Council is that you kind of park those issues and then you move on other issues and actually try to find where you do still have common ground and common interests. And you see, for example, this thing of negotiating agreements on search and rescue and preventing oil pollution, the agreement on scientific cooperation, where there is a shared interest. It's a matter of coordination rather than resolving conflict. So it's kind of a pragmatic. And I think from a peacekeeping point of view, it's important that because you have already established this space, that that work can still continue. And of course, that makes it more 
more important to actually keep the conflicts at bay. So in that sense, even if Arctic Council hasn't dealt with all the issues that I think it maybe should have dealt with, you can think of the Arctic without the Arctic Council, without that kind of room for talking to each other, a space for negotiation, a space for learning, which it has functioned as. I guess it is a matter of, as you mentioned, a matter of a national interest. I guess we're testing now the resilience of the of the institution, of the regime, of the Arctic Council of regime here, with these pressures, such as resource exploitation being uh, rather contentious, even though a lot of countries seem to be on board with resource exploitation. What it's doing, it's emphasizing that the Arctic Council is not above any national interest. It's a negotiating body among national interests. And what you see is, in a sense, the whole debate that came with an Arctic Treaty and all those ideas that came after this sea ice minimum. First and foremost, the Arctic Five, the Rim countries, came with the Lulisat Declaration and said very decidedly, it's the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea that should be the legal regime that should regulate any conflict. And that's, of course, because they have a strong voice and a strong rights in that. And then what happened was that a long discussion had been going on whether to strengthen the Arctic Council. It was pretty fuzzy. <laughs> fuzzy body in terms of how it functioned. It didn't have a secretariat. Uh, it didn't have an archive. Uh, couldn't find documents. It consolidated itself into what you could call an international organization, which it wasn't beforehand. Beforehand, it was really a high-level forum, and it's still a high-level forum in that it doesn't have any legal, legally binding agreement, but it consolidated itself as an organization. When did this transformation take place, approximately? Well, that was very much in response to the increasing geopolitical interest for actors from outside the region, basically saying, stop, hey, this is our turf. I wrote one article where I actually tried to look at if there had been a social ecological regime shift in the Arctic, because of course you could argue that we're in the process of an ecological regime shift with the sea ice disappearing and really a different climate regime in the Arctic. But that does not in and of itself constitute a social ecological regime shift, because the social aspects don't follow automatically. They could follow, but they don't follow automatically. But looking from a pan-Arctic perspective, the circumpolar scale, my conclusion was, no, rather the opposite. Every country went back to, we are an Arctic country. It's the state that's the natural actor. And don't try to question that. So you actually got a reinforcement of the state as the natural actor, i.e. the traditional international order we have had since the peace of Westphalia. That's what was reinforced when it was challenged by environmental change, but it was also then challenged by other actors coming in. And it was actually interesting because the reviewers really wanted to push me into saying that isn't there a regime shift. But I did not see that the structure of international cooperation in the Arctic circumpolar had really changed. It had rather, it has reinforced an old structure and reinforced the Arctic Council in terms of the organizational strain. And then, of course, reasserting UNCLOS as the natural regime is not changing UNCLOS at all. Same rules as before, but saying we adhere to those. When new observers apply to the Arctic Council, they have to agree to the Arctic Council having its role and UNCLOS being the natural legal regime to regulate any conflict. 
it's a very interesting observation that these outside pressures have not pulled it apart, but they've actually made it stronger, the Arctic Council. So these observer countries, China being the one that gets the most attention by far. So do you see this continuing, that outside pressures will continue to make the Arctic Council stronger? Or at the heart of this paradox that we're talking about here, will these tensions eventually reach a tipping point, if you want to use that metaphor? It makes the Arctic Council say, well, we, we can't really cooperate as much as we'd like to. We have to just really hunker down in our own uh, national interests at this point. I think that will not depend so much on pressures in the Arctic. I think it will depend on global developments. The really serious threat to the Arctic Council was not the new observers. It was uh, Russia's annexation of Crimea and the West's reaction to that. That created real tensions. And there, I think, those larger geopolitical issues that have very little to do with the Arctic as such, I think those are the ones that are more difficult to deal with. But on the other hand, the Arctic countries might still have an interest in maintaining peace in the region because that is a prerequisite for being able to extract the resources. In a sense, competitive advantage that the Arctic has compared to the Mideast is that it's not a conflict zone. Otherwise, it has a lot of disadvantages in the you know, large distances, difficult climate to work with, expensive, but that you have functioning legal structures, that you have a certain amount of predictability in terms of political developments, that is a comparative advantage. I think also these countries see it as a very useful place where they could, of course, they could have their conflicts over Ukraine or, or Syria. At least in the Arctic, they can talk. But how long can that be maintained? As long as it serves their interest. And I think there will be issues that they avoid. It might go down. It might not be the Minister of Foreign Affairs meeting. It, they might meet on the lower level. But as long as it serves the interests of the member states. And of course, then you also have the permanent participants. We haven't discussed that that much, but somehow it's the member states where the real tensions are. But I also see the value, and I think the member states and the permanent participants see the value of having this as a forum where you can share experiences, where you can share knowledge, can share best practices, and you can say that, yes, we're moving forward. And that is an important, I mean, I think in a sense cooperative agreements are most important when you disagree. When you all agree and don't have any conflicts, then you could do without them. But when you have disagreements and need to continue talking and need to try to solve those disagreements, that's when they become the most important. And I think one has to look at it at two levels. You have the high level where it may or may not do so much depending on how the conflicts look like at that particular time. And then you have the working group level that continues to kind of do things that are not high politics in the same sense. And Annika, so any, any final comments to tie together these two uh, parts of the interview here, the Arctic Paradox Part 1 with the environmental protection versus resource exploitation, and Part 2 with the region of peace versus mounting tensions? I think to understand the Arctic, one has to look in a longer time perspective, how both visions of resource use and how politics have developed over time. Things didn't just start suddenly in 2007, even if that's what it looks like if you look, for example, about media coverage. It's a longer process, and that longer process has both regional aspects, but it also, of course, is connected to global developments. Hey, well, Annika Nielsen, thanks very much for joining us here on the Polar Geopolitics Podcast. Thank you.
You can subscribe to the Polar Geopolitics podcast on most major platforms, including Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and Acast. Check out our website, polargeopolitics.com. Get in touch by email, polargeopolitics.podcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Polar Geopol. Music by Mark Vandenbosch. Voiceover, Keith Foster. Logo design by Daniel Brockman. My name is Eric Paglia. Thanks for listening to Polar Geopolitics.